podcast, Chuck Blakeman talks about how to rehumanize workforce and make them ready for tomorrow. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Jobs of Future podcast. Today we have with us an amazing guest. Uh, we have Chuck Blickman and a brief uh, bio. So he's a chief transformation officer and founder of Crankset Group. Chuck's first book, Making Money um, is Killing Your Business, was named number one rated business book of the year. And his most recent book, Why Employees Are a Bad Idea, has been named top 10 business book of the year. Both are required readings with several universities, MBA and entrepreneurial program. Uh, that's interesting. And Chuck started and built 12 businesses in 25 years in, in US and internationally, and now uses his experience to help business owners and executives create success. His company, Crankside Group, inspires and transforms your approach to business and, and future. Chuck is a rare combination of successful business owner, speaker, and author who inspires leaders and provides simple tools to transform businesses. With that, Chuck, uh, welcome to the podcast. Great, it's great to be with you. And just to let people know how this is gonna go, every time somebody reads that, I feel like they're reading my obituary. Uh, but, yeah, that's, and obituaries never tell the full truth and they're always embellished a little bit. And, so yeah, I sound really great. Let's get into it and find out what I'm really like. I was about to say it's not bad for an obituary, by the way. I like, this is pretty darn amazing. So um, uh, I think uh, one thing that I found fascinating about uh, um, uh, about your background, Chuck, I think you you were talking about um, um, interesting aspects, an interesting sort of way to think about humanizing uh, or humanizing a work culture and, and, and impacting the bottom line. Beautiful thought. So before we get into the meat of the stuff, uh, want to would love to learn about your journey, like what brought you to this point? Sure. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur, as you mentioned, and I'm not a business guy. I went to music school and I did not graduate. I went, I played orchestral music and I, it took me 19 years after I was supposed to graduate. I finally got a degree just to make my mom happy because my brother got a fancy Ivy League thing and my sister graduated with her master's from Yale and I didn't even have a bachelor's and she was the board of education president. I mean, this was a real black sheep thing. So I finally just got a, a degree to, to, to help her. But uh, I'm left-handed, I'm right-brained, I'm ADHD and dyslexic. So I just don't see the world like that, you know, like a lot of business people do. And I didn't know that for decades. Mm. You know, I, I knew that I was weird. I had trouble getting out of high school. I thought I was stupid. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, through the years, I just did things the way that I thought they would work. I never looked around. Mm. One of my great strengths and my great weaknesses is that I don't look – at what other people are doing and say, what should I do? Should I do what they're doing? That's a strength, but it's also a weakness because you can learn things. But my strength in that was that I didn't look out there and say, well, this is the way everybody's supposed to run a business, so I guess I'll do that. I mm. just went at it with what seemed to work over the decades. I didn't have, we didn't have titles. We didn't have vacation time. We didn't have uh, set pay structures. We had people who made localized decisions, uh, you know, a lot of self-management and just things that seemed to work. I just believed people were adults and treated them that way and was surprised when they didn't uh, act that way. And gee, what a surprise. We ended up with a pretty good thing. And, and then down the road, uh, you know, eight or so business ends, some of my friends said, hey, can you help me do that? Because it seemed to be working. And so I started helping mm -hmm. some friends. 
build businesses without managers because we've never had managers. We've had 120 plus people in some of my businesses and, and managers are, are, are the dumbest idea in business. And we, mm. we can get into that. Not man, not the people, but the process, the, the actual mm. organizational model. And I just started helping other people do this. And as I was doing it, I began to feel the responsibility. I wonder if what I'm doing is actually a good idea. Maybe I mm. should study some of this. <laughs> and so I, so I looked at the history of, of, of management and leadership and organizations and that stuff, and I got incredible confirmation that what I had fallen into was just simple, intuitive, common sense business mm-hmm. stuff that everybody needed. And that set me on the journey of, of, of doing this as, my, as my, uh, my, our company. We, we now focus on helping other business owners figure out how to rehumanize their workplace by giving everybody their brain back. Interesting. And and um, fascinating, by the way. And and what does a typical day in your life look like? So a typical day for me, well, uh, two things. You can see this thing behind me. It says get off the treadmill. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we help leaders figure out how to stop doing the dumb stuff they're doing every day that we call management. Uh, leaders never manage. And managers, by the mm-hmm. way, never lead. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if a manager is leading, they're mistitled. They should just be called mm-hmm. leader and get it, out, get it out of the way. But most people are doing things like trying to run production processes, marketing, price, uh, assembly, all that other stuff that other people should be doing. Leaders should be caring about the vision, the values, the purpose, the, the, the people, all that high-level stuff. And when you get all that right, the other people take care of the other stuff. So we want them to get off the treadmill of the daily, the daily grind and figure out how to actually uh, have the time to, to lead. So for myself, I, do, I never tell anybody to do anything I don't do myself. Mm-hmm. I encourage leaders, if you're going to be a leader in your business, you should have a minimum, uh, depending on the size of the business. When it's real small, this is harder, but you get mm-hmm. to 10 or 15 or 20 people and above 150, 500, you should have a minimum of 50% of your time unavailable and unsche- or unscheduled and unavailable to solve crises. So I'm unscheduled. That's the easy mm. part. But are you unavailable? Can somebody else fix this? Uh, you got to get off the treadmill by distributing the decision making. We'll talk a lot more about that. So that's what my day looks like. <laughs> so I, I, I've designed my week uh, over, over the period, uh, over the last uh, 10, 20 years. I work three days a week, three weeks a month. And I take another week, I take a month off uh, somewhere else in the year. So two days a week a week, a month, and a month a year, I get up in the morning saying, what should I do today? Mm-hmm. I don't go to vacation. You know, people know me. I'm not going to go sit on a beach. But I, I get up in the morning with the opportunity to do whatever I want. I write. I work with business owners because I chose to. I ride mm-hmm. my bicycle a lot. Uh, it's a great place for me to get strategic time. If you add up two days a week, a week, a month, and a month a year, if you add up mm-hmm. just that for the business week, it is 73% of the week, uh, of, of mm-hmm. the work week. Mm-hmm. 73% of my year I'm avail- I'm unscheduled and unavailable to solve crises. So that's what my week looks like. That's pretty cool. Darn cool, by the way. And and what does what does uh, Cranset do? Um, yeah, we we help other companies at this point in the last ten years. We help other companies rehumanize their workplaces, like we did for our twelve businesses by giving everybody their brain back. And people would say, "Well, you know, don't they already have a brain?" Well, there we go. We can get into that. But we're we're dealing with a a, a system that came from the factories, and we call it the factory system. I didn't make that up, but the, mm. the, the, the top-down management hierarchy was developed in slavery. It mm. came through serfdom into the military, out of the military, into business in the late 1700s, 
And that's our business model is a slavery serfdom military top-down model that, that basically it turns everybody into an idiot. Uh, if, you're, if you have slaves, you better have managers because they have mm. no motivation whatsoever to work for you. The only way you're going to get them to work is with a whip. And so the managers today, the, the whip for managers today is the, the, uh, the gun. I can fire mm. you. So we, we help people figure out, we can help companies figure out how to remove managers from their entire, from their process and to not just about removing managers, but about giving everybody the ability to make distributed decisions. I'll give you an example. It's not a company we mm. worked with, but just to mm. jerk people's chains on this, <clears throat> this sounds really radical. It's not. We're going back where we came from before the factories. That's number mm. one. This is what we did for thousands of years, free people. Mm. But, uh, you look at, there's a company out there called Hire. Hire has mm. 75,000 full-time people, 90,000 part-time. It's three, mm. you know, two and a half times the size of Google. And the entire corporation is set up in 10 to 15 person teams with no managers, no, not a single manager in the 160,000 plus people. There are nobody manages anybody. The 10 to 15 people on each team have their own business center. They're required to put together their own vision, their own strategy, their own processes, their own product development, their own uh, customer strategies, uh, human relation, HR stuff. Everything falls on those individual teams. And oh, by the way, these guys make washing machines and refrigerators. This is not exactly the highest tech company mm. in the world. Uh, so it's not like you have to be a, a bunch of geniuses to pull this off. Hundreds of very large corporations like that have been doing this for up to 60 years and thousands of smaller ones like ours. So we're helping other companies get into what we call the participation age, which has two hallmarks, participation and sharing. Everybody wants to participate in building a great company and they want to share in the rewards. How do we actually make that transition from a top-down hierarchy to what we would call a much flatter organization that has no managers in it and has distributed decision-making everywhere. How do we do that without mm -hmm. chaos? That's what we do on a regular basis. Interesting. And um, I think recently I, uh, I was looking at your book, um, Why Employees Are a Always a Bad Idea. Why such a profound title? Like who, who, come, who came up with this profound title? Yeah. And just give some. Yeah, all, all my, my my books have profound have snarky <laughs> titles, uh, you know, and uh, and uh, that's unashamed marketing, but it's it's not cheap marketing. I hate cheap mm. marketing, sleazy <laughs> marketing. I really truly believe mm. that employees are always, no exceptions, a bad idea, and the reason for that is because again, the concept of an employee, the way we understand the word and the history of that word, it cannot be rehabilitated. It was broken to begin with. It's like saying, well, maybe we should just uh, change the name slave to something else. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, it doesn't work. And the same thing with employee. <laughs> in the factories, uh, the first, uh, in the first factories for about the first 40, 50, 60 years in many of the factories around the Western world, somewhere around 50% of the, the uh, employees were under the age of nine and mm -hmm. 90 plus percent of them were under the age of 16. They were children. So that's the beginnings of this whole thing. And they weren't children by, they weren't there by their own volition. The first factories were actually uh, factories where they went and they bought orphans. They bought the orphans from orphanages, took them from the orphanages, gave them hot beds in the factory and worked them six days a week, 12 hours a day and gave them porridge. And they weren't there of their own uh, volition. The reason for that is because adults would not do this. They looked at, factory work and said, are you kidding me? 
I own my own shoe shop, man. I'm, a, I'm, I, mm. I'm in control of my destiny. You want me to do what? Put a nail in the left boot? That is dehumanizing. I'm out. They couldn't find any adults to do this, so they bought children. And then the, the uh, poor people began to, to uh, <laughs> take stipends or take money to send their kids to factories. And eventually it got to where there weren't enough kids and, and they drove enough shoemakers out of, out of work that the shoemakers had to get in there as well. So employees have a, th that word has a terrible connotation and it has created a mindset of codependency where people show up without their brains to be told mm -hmm. what to do. We want to replace that with stakeholders. So employees are always a bad idea. Stakeholders are a great idea. Stakeholders are people, you know, they put a stake in the ground and they own this place. They got a mindset of, I, I belong here. I'm one of many here who own this place. Even if I don't own it physically, I have a mindset of ownership. I'm in a full adult. I bring my brain to work every day and I contribute, I participate, and I share. We want every, every employee should be done away with and every one of them should be given their brains back and become stakeholders. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. And and it's, I think it's a very interesting thought, by the way. So um, when you talk about employees, right, you have a set uh, agenda. You want to hire them for a reason. You have uh, you to fill these guys, folks. But when you talk about stakeholders, you want someone with more ownership, uh, most sort of more entrepreneurial spirit and all that, right? So wouldn't that that make it a bit harder um, for companies to to um, supplement so-called employees with so-called sure. uh, stakeholders? What's yeah, that's one that? of the first questions. I, what's one of the first questions I get is, well, where do you find these people? How do you get lucky enough to find stakeholders? Because there's not that many of those people out there with that kind of initiative. Hmm. And they're right. Our, our research shows and, and Gallup and others research show on engagement and disengagement somewhere around, depending on the research that you see, somewhere around 20% or a little bit more of people are actively engaged. They can't help themselves mm. no matter what environment mm. you put them in. They're going to mm. be adults and they're going to bring it all. They can't even mm. help themselves. Even if they hate their environment, they're going to be actively engaged. Throughout history, interestingly enough, the same number exists. Before the factories came into a being, somewhere around 80 to 90% of all free people owned their own business. And there were 20% that were actively disengaged. We believe that's the true number of people out there who will actually do this. So why is there a disconnect? Why did 20% show up actively engaged today and yet it was 80% historically before the factories? Hmm. The answer is because most people need a job and most people hmm. are threatened. Uh, they're, they're, they, the manager has the whip. I can fire you. Mm. And if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do, I will fire you. I was unemployable. I worked for two other companies and, and I was absolutely unemployable because I kept having ideas. And that threatened the manager. Mm. I almost got fired once because I came up with a really great idea that the company eventually did after I was gone. But you, know, you learn very quickly, uh, having a brain at work actually is not a good idea. So I'm going to turn it off. And then you can look around and you say, you know what? I kind of like this. I'm an adult at home. I got enough decisions to make at home. I don't really like making decisions at work. And codependence sets in. Management is nothing more, nothing less than pure, unadulterated codependence. The manager needs somebody to tell what to do. And that's convenient because I'd actually like someone to tell me what to do. So 
we prove the need for managers by telling people what to do and teaching them codependence. They actually enjoy it, and off we go. <laughs> Stakeholders are not actually hard to find. 20% are going to mm -hmm. do it no matter what, and mm -hmm. our estimate is at least another 60% will do it if you remove the gun and if you allow and require. It's not even allow, but you, I, I will fire you now for not making decisions, for not being an adult. All of a sudden, well, we don't have any trouble finding people. And that's what we find in companies. Rarely do people quit when we put this proposition in place. They realize, they realize okay, uh, now I'm, I'm actually going to have to bring my brain. Before, if I brought my brain, I got fired. Now, mm. if I don't bring my brain, I'm going to get fired. And the overwhelming majority step up, and rarely do we have a problem. And then the 5 or 10 or 15% who don't want to adopt will eventually get pushed out by the 80%. And instead mm. of the classic 30% engagement, which is what we have, 20 to 30% engagement, it, it should be 100. Interesting. Interesting. And, and, and what about, um, like, how, how would a company look at this, 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 this model? So I have been dealing with employees forever. The, the culture sets in. My HR is tuned in. They all understand how this landscape works. Now we're talking about something profound. And whenever you talk about changing culture to something different, it obviously, it just sends chills to the bone of um, the corporate structures. Yeah. So how would you see um, companies responding or, or like what what have you seen companies responding yeah. to the something well, like this? Well, it's all across the board. Uh, mm -hmm. with, with companies that are highly hier hierarchical, you know, the interesting thing here is uh, when we go into a company and they say, how do you do this? And we say, well, one of the key things is the managers have to get on board with it. Mm. Well, ironically, the managers are the ones who, who perceive, it's not true, but they're the ones who perceive they have the most to lose. Mm. So why in God's name would I do this? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're telling me to eliminate managers and I'm a manager mm. and I'm, the, I'm one of the ones who has to do this. Well, we're not going to eliminate you necessarily. What we're probably going to do with, with 70 to 80% of you is you put, is put you in a position where you're doing something you're really good at, uh, putting you back in production uh, in, a, in a high level way, not you know, as one leader of many. And some of you will make into strategic leaders. So you have, you're in control of your own destiny. If you're already a leader, you'll probably just get blessed and say you're a leader and, and keep going. Uh, but it, so one of the responses is uh, this, uh, probably the biggest response we get is, yeah, you know, this sounds like a good idea. Everybody should have a brain, mm. but I see in front of us, if we do this, we're going to have a lot of chaos and anarchy and upheaval. And uh, yeah, we might get there, but three, six months, 12 months later, and I, I can't afford to do that because we have our quarterly performance. We've got to hit as a company. So I can't afford to do this because you're going to mess everything up. Nothing is farther from the truth. Every company that we've seen make this switch from a top-down hierarchy to mm -hmm. a side-by-side -side organization of distributed decision-making teams, every single one of them, as soon as they begin to implement the things we ask them to implement, production, stats, uh, revenue, growth, everything goes up. There is no dip, but that's the, the biggest problem that we get. The biggest argument we get is things are going to fall apart before they come back together. There's three people, three responses from companies, uh, three reasons companies will do this. One is the altruistic uh, response. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Whole Foods, uh, what's his name? He, was, he started Whole Foods. Uh, I met him. I was on stage and I forget his name. Uh, it'll come back to me. But, you know, it was an altruism thing for him. He just wanted everybody to have their brain. It just seemed nice. Mm -hmm. It seemed like a good thing. It seemed like the right thing to do. 
Well, great. That's a, you know, the early adopters might do it for that reason. But then a second reason would be everything's a mess anyway. It's already crumbling. So what we're doing isn't working. Well, let's try something else. So desperation puts people into it. The third one is the best one. It's the data. And the data is uh, for, for those who are running well, doing great, and saying, why in, in the world would I ever do this? The answer is because things will run even better. You will make more money faster, have higher production, lower, re mm. uh, lower staff turnover, higher retention. Every data point is on the side of going in this direction. So even if things are going well, you should do this. Interesting. I think one thing that that, that I found fascinating. So there are a lot of um, a couple of weeks back, we have a guest from uh, he he, he co-founded uh, uh, Holacracy. Like so, there are a lot of models that are emerging that are talking about sort of taking this this hierarchical approach and reshoveling it and and trying to create this distributed uh, decision making processes. And then when when we go out and talking to businesses and, and HR leaders, they get almost. Uh, chills and when when it comes to dealing with hey how like I cannot fathom this sure it it shows results uh, but it's still a very gimmicky right now it's very early stage and that has been like a like a consistent cry um, from from when you talk to businesses like it's I have been here for last hundreds of years and this is the not the reason like we have this it's tested through time it has tested the revolution yeah. and blah 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 so what would you what would you uh, Tell or say to those on the fence um, sure. executives who are who are listening to this new wave of um, organizational yeah, so, management. Yeah, I, I diverge very. You know, I think uh, Brian uh, Peterson and Brian and, and and the guys at Holacracy, we are mm. in lockstep in terms mm. of what we want as a result. Mm. We want to re we both want to rehumanize the workplace, give everybody their brains back, and and uh, eliminate the whole concept of top down hierarchy. All that stuff mm. is identical. Our tactics for uh, how to get that done would diverge uh, uh, right mm. out of the gate. I and and I've shared this with those guys. I feel like holacracy is dead on arrival, mm. and the reason is, and, and again, it's the most well-intentioned. And I'm not saying I wouldn't have come up with it myself <laughs> under different circumstances, but mm. the reason it's dead on arrival, Michelle, is because it is a it's a factory system solution to mm. a participation age problem. What did we do for what? What is it that dehumanized work more than any other thing? It's the it's this. Hmm. Managers saw an opportunity or a problem. They came up with a solution. They hmm. came out of their office. They told people, "Here's the solution," and they went back into their office. I have no ownership whatsoever in that solution. None. Hmm. And my only my only response to it is is the time honored response. I'm either going to do it because I don't want to lose my job or I quit. But I'm, you're not engaging my brain at all. Hmm. Holacracy is a template. It's a finished template uh, with a constitution right down to exactly how you should run every meeting. All that stuff is laid out for you. And the idea is that you can overlay this one template onto any organization and run the organization with this one template. That is a management response to a uh, to a distributed decision making problem, I believe there has to be a different way to run meetings. I believe you probably should have something like a mm. constitution. I believe that you mm. should have, you know, all these things that holacracy believes mm. in. I believe it. The difference mm. is simply this, Vishal. Where does it come from? Mm. Where do those things come from? Do they come from the edges in and the center out organically? Mm. Do we figure this out together, 
or do they come from the top down? Uh, uh, Zappos was the most famous, uh, uh, you know, example of holacracy, and I get that thrown mm -hmm. at me a lot because mm -hmm. you know a lot of people buck that. Why? Because it's mm -hmm. just another management solution that gives you with a much better outcome, but it's still a management solution. So once you get there, well, then yeah, it probably does work. But the other problem with it again is that every company is a snowflake. So we present these things in principle. We have to run meetings differently. And there's 15 great ways to run meetings. There's not just one. So which one would work for you guys? You guys figure that out. Everybody figures that out together. And the simple uh, end of this discussion is this. Input equals ownership. The more input I have in, in, in a solution, the more ownership I'll have in it. We want to arrive at the same place. But we're going to take people through a process where, <laughs> where we, we, we get them to own it. The other difference here is that what we do is not subtractive. Mm. It's actually additive. So we do not go in and say, let's destroy all managers and let's take away everything. Let's No, we're going to add some things that create horizontal relationships that mm. begin to naturally replace our codependency on the things above us so that over a few weeks, few months, a few, and maybe a year, we begin to look around and, and, and both the manager and us agree, we don't need each other anymore. We got this. And so it's, it's a much more additive process and, and doesn't disrupt. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. And, and when you now when you talk about the companies, right, who are on the receiving end of, receiving end of these new modified templates uh, to execute, whether it's yours, whether it's uh, it's any peers. So, what would you tell tell you to what would you tell to um, those executives who are running a very legacy old school companies who have not yet um, uh, who are very s sort of engraved and thickened on 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 the spine of the organizational hierarchy and not very 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 sort of they get paranoid with this these new sure. frameworks that are coming in. How, what, would you, what, what would you say to those guys? Well, the first thing I would go after is the data. Because mm -hmm. the data, you know, let, let's just deal with facts. Let's not deal with emotions mm -hmm. or altruism or any of that nonsense. Mm -hmm. Let's just mm -hmm. decide which one of these works better. And uh, I'll give them hundreds of large corporations with thousands to, to tens of thousands of people and thousands of smaller ones. And we'll just look at the data. Every one of those companies that, that, that lives without managers, that has distributed decision-making teams at their core, uh, run at the top of their industries. They're, they have the lowest uh, staff turnover. Uh, they have the highest retention. They have the highest productivity. Just examples like Wegmans Groceries in the East Coast. The mm. average turnover in a, in a grocery store is like 35 to 40% or more. For the last uh, 30 plus years, Wegmans turnover uh, retention is 3% is, or turnover is 3% or less. Mm. You know, you put that up, it's not even a fair fight with all the other grocery stores in the area when you can keep your bag boys and checkout clerks for 10 or 15 years instead of three months. Uh, that kind of data. So you grow faster. Uh, you, you, uh, and again, there's just tons of data on this. There's no data on the side of keeping, of continuing doing what we're doing. So if you're data driven, then let's look at the data. And that's the first place to part to, to say it. And then if they say, well, okay, let's do this. And what's the first thing we need to do? The first thing after that is we have to look at what we believe. Mm. What, what do we believe about business and about people? 
it's a uh, uh, in in 1960. Again, none of the stuff I'm talking about here is new. It just sounds new. Mm. In 1960, mm. Douglas McGregor wrote a book called The Human Side of Enterprise, and mm. he was playing off of a paper from 1911 by Frederick Winslow Taylor called Scientific Management. In that paper, Scientific Management, Winslow Taylor made the uh, the the fatal error of defining employees in two ways. They are stupid and they are lazy. And he used both those words and, and, and spoke at length about the problem. And therefore, if that's true, then you need mm. managers. It's the only solution. You need uh, find the few smart and motivated people, lord them over the stupid and lazy ones, and thus management was born. Well, Douglas McGregor said, okay, that's theory X. People are stupid and lazy. What if we tested theory Y? Let's go after that. People are smart and motivated. And so he would look at, he, he found companies, he, he found like six companies in the same industry, three of which thought their people were stupid and lazy, and three of which the leaders thought their people were smart and motivated. And then he looked at the results. Gee, what a surprise. In the companies where the leadership thought people were stupid and lazy, everybody was stupid and lazy. Mm. And in the companies where people were smart and motivated, everybody was smart and motivated, and they had better retention, higher productivity, faster growth, higher profits. Both of these are self-fulfilling prophecies. Why? Because I have something in my head that I believe about people, about work, about business. So we have to go after what's in our heads. Again, the chaos is not in your business. It's in your head. And if you want to find out what's in your business, uh, in your head, take a look at your business and then figure out why, what is it in your head that's doing this. So we help them work through their very simple core beliefs about people, business, success, money, strategy. Uh, and it's amazing how much of, of what we inherited from the factory system infiltrates and damages the way we view people. Just that one thing. If I believe people are smart and mo or stupid and lazy and you think they're smart and motivated, then how do I value them? Well, I value them very little. And how do you value them? Very high. And how do I think of them? As disposable. How do you think of them? As, uh, as uh, indispensable. And off we go. Just that one little thing. So we have to deal with what's in our heads first. And I can't work with a company where the CEO says, well, I'm pretty sure people are stupid and lazy, but it looks like you got good data on your side. So why don't mm -hmm. you go work with my people and set them free? Uh-uh. It starts with him and, and with the leadership team. If they don't truly believe that their people are smart and motivated, if they can't do what Hire did and have a 75,000-person corporation that is broken mm -hmm. up into 10 to 15 15-person teams, then uh, we're dead in the water. Interesting. So um, you, you said, I think you use a beautiful word uh, called rehumanized workforce, right? So what exactly does, what do you mean by that? Like what exactly is rehumanizing workforce? What, well, you know, and I had to study that because I had come to that intuitively and said, all right, well, is hmm. that just cute or is that really something that, that is? Hmm. What makes us human? You know, let's start with that. Well, the first thing that makes us human is awareness. You know, that we, you know, we're aware of our timeline and that kind of stuff. Hmm. And then beyond that, what makes us human? And it, actually, the second thing that makes us human more than anything else is creativity. And mm. creativity shows itself in our ability to build skyscrapers, to to understand the universe on a molecular level, to you know, to build a fence, to create a piece of art, you know, welding. You know, accounting is creative. It's not just painting, because what is the thing that makes us creative? Behind that is the key to rehumanizing or dehumanizing. Creativity is nothing more, nothing less than a series of decisions. Hmm. Michelangelo, the, the story is he walked around a, a piece of granite in the, in the courtyard of the, of the uh, 
the uh, cathedral in uh, Florence, he walked around this piece of granite, just walked and walked around it until he saw what was in there. And then he j just chipped away everything that wasn't that, and David emerged. And that's kind of how he explained it. It's a series of decisions. I've written music. I, you know, my family's artistic. I mentioned I've, I've come from that background. Uh, art is nothing more than a series of decisions. Well, should I go this direction? Should I go that direction? How you get to work is a creative process. Should I go left? Where's the traffic? You know, what lane should I be in? Everything is about decision making. When I get to make decisions, that humanizes me and it makes me adult. One of the, what's one of the things that changes me from a kid to an adult? I remember when I got to college, I bought a half gallon of ice cream. I stuck it in the fridge and I looked at it and said, I can eat that anytime I want. Mm. <laughs> I'm an adult. You know, now that also comes with the responsibility. I can eat that anytime I want. So it's decision-making, Michelle. When we talk about rehumanizing the workplace and giving mm. everybody their brain back, the, the methodology, the practice for doing that is distributed, universally distributed decision-making through what we call distributed decision-making teams or DDM teams. Every team makes localized decisions based on what will actually impact them. Interesting. And that so I think well said. So if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a corporation, right, if, if I'm an organization, um, when is the right time to think that, okay, there's a problem and I, and, and, and sure. I need fixing? Like what are some of the, maybe some of the litmus tests or some of, some of those indications that just point me to, hey, I should maybe look for a solution? Yeah. Yeah. This isn't sandbox stuff. This isn't the woo-woo crap stuff. This is hardcore success strategy. So how do you manage, you know, how do you manage this stuff? You don't manage the people, but you just not figure out how do we make this go? There are three major responsibilities or main responsibilities of a leader. Managers don't do this, although good managers will do these things as well. But a, a leader's responsibility are three things. Guard the values, champion the people, and pilot the results. Guard the values, champion the people, and pilot the results. Managers, one of the things, one of the main, three main things that distinguish a manager from a leader is managers focus on process, leaders focus on results. So a manager says, how are we going to do this? And he comes out of his, his office or her office and tells everybody, here's the process, now go run it. Again, no decision-making, I'm dehumanized. A leader will come out of their office and say, they won't even say, here's the result I want. What they will say is, what result do you think we should have? You hmm. cannot lose asking that question. He, he or she should already have in their head what result they think they want. But why would you not ask them first? I... I uh, consulted with one of the four largest uh, 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 software companies in the world, and I'll just leave it at that. And uh, they they uh, couldn't understand. They would come and tell people uh, that we're we're now going to uh, raise our goal from five billion to twenty two billion for the year, and here's the process for doing it. And they were confused as to why people were resisting that or were were not on board with it. They're mm. just telling people what to do. So. Uh, you know, we, we can't take that approach. We've got to take the approach of coming out of our office and asking them, what do you think we could do? They might have said 25 billion. But look, if, if there are 5 billion and everybody in your office, in your, in the 2,000 people in your division say, we think we can get to 6 billion, and you got 21 billion in your head, you got a problem. You need to know that. But instead, the guy came out of his office and said, oh, here's 20, you know, we're going to do 21 billion. What did everybody do? They nodded their heads and they mm -hmm. acted, pretended like they were on board and then it didn't happen because they didn't have their input. Let's figure out what we can actually do. And you might end up at 18 billion because they didn't realize all the things they could do that you could help them with. That's leadership. So ask 
questions. Come out of your office and say, what result do you think we can get? And then you you focus on that. You agree together on what result you can get. And there, here's the magic. You turn the process over to them. The how becomes theirs. This is how you rehumanize the workplace. We agree together on what result we want. Now you go figure out how to get that result. You use your brains and apply it to whatever process. And if you need me, I'll help you with that. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you how to get that result. And then I'm going to monitor that result. We are going to monitor that result. So to answer a long-winded question, a long-winded answer, but if they're not getting the result we all agreed on together, you're right back there saying, okay, is the process you guys designed working? Maybe we need to come up with another one. Have you tried this? What about that? Offer solutions, uh, but uh, yeah, you, you, it's not abdication; it's leadership. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting, and 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 one thing. Um, when 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 i when i think about these organizational structure and 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 how businesses are appreciated today right so if 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 you see any publicly traded company they are appreciated for their bottom line and and their predictable growth right or or at least unpredictable success right so um, whichever goes higher so when you talk about those those sort of parameters which are very uh, number driven and very uh, bottom line driven they those parameters not necessarily go hand in hand with a good corporate culture many times it 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 promotes this idea of cutting corners it promotes this idea of uh, um doing more with less and less so how would uh, from your vantage point how would this uh, impact or this ideology of 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 bottom line and and predictable success ideology yeah. uh, fiddle with with your your sort of approach of uh, rehumanizing workforce Yeah, great question. This is this is bottom line driven. Again, you give me 10 companies that you think are at the top of the industry that aren't self-managed with the DDM teams and give me all of their data on on growth, productivity, profit, revenues, retention, all that stuff and I'll put them up against 10 teams in the same industry, 10 companies mm-hmm. in the same industry with that are that have no managers and there will the, the bottom line data will be better. So this is bottom line driven. The difference is what we're really talking about here is short term versus long term decision making. Hmm. And in most companies they don't understand, they don't play the long game, they don't understand that being nice to people and treating them like adults will make them more money. Here's the dirty little secret in business. When you treat people nice and you treat them like adults, you make more money. Yeah, I don't have time for that crap. I got a quarterly number to to make. And so we start squeezing thing, cutting corners. I mean, they're squeezing and cutting corners right now. And we're going to teach them how not to do that. But it's not it's not again about uh, having a dip. It's about changing the way you you get that quarterly number by inviting everyone to participate. If you look at participation age DDM team cultures, one of the things you will find almost universally is almost complete and utter transparency on the numbers mm. to the point where in most of these companies or in at least a lot of them they know what everybody else makes including the CEO you can go on a computer and type anybody's name and you find out exactly what they make benefits the whole thing and in some of them they actually uh, allow everybody to type in their own salary and say here's what I'll make now they also have peer reviews that that temper that but the point is utter transparency creates 
Uh, first of all, when you treat pe people like adults, they start acting like them. So if you don't treat them like adults, you say, well, I can't, I can't let them do this because they'll wreck the place. Well, you've created this codependency. But secondly, when you have utter transparency, people step up. I'll give you some concrete examples. Long mm -hmm. ago, when we decided that we weren't going to take keep track of of expenses anymore, where you're you're an adult, do what is in the best interest of the company and do what you would do if it was your company. We stopped tracking uh, expenses on a global on a global level. Each year, when we look at our our expenses for travel and entertainment, that kind of stuff, they're exponentially lower than when we track expenses every year. Uh, we decided that we would no longer track vacation, unlimited vacation. Get your job done. If you get your job done, we don't, we don't care where you are and we don't care when you are. As soon as we did that, people started taking less vacation. We actually had to institute a vacation uh, 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 revenue where you get fifteen or $1,500 if you go on vacation. We'll pay you to go on vacation. When you treat people like adults, they act like adults. And when you give them utter transparency, they figure things out. Barry Waymiller had a, and so did Semco, they had these issues in the recession where they figured they needed to cut 20% of their staff. But they were already showing everybody all the books, and so they put it to the, to the people and said, what do you think we should do? Across the board, they decided, both companies decided, well, we'll all just take 20% pay cuts so we don't have to fire anybody. And if somebody can't afford to do that, well, I'll take more time off because that single mother needs more time at work or whatever, and it all worked out. Uh, it, it, utter transparency turns us into adults, just the opposite of what we think. We think we need to guard all our, our numbers so that nobody can see them. Interesting. And, and one more um, de debate that we are, we are hearing a lot nowadays is um, businesses' emphasis on doing more with less workers, right? So sure. uh, can, I, can I do it with 10% less, 18% less, I have a mandate to blah, 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 and, and those sort of those areas to cut corners and, and trying to figure out how would um, something like this or how would this, these innovative solutions, yeah. um, how would it, how would this ideology of doing more with, more with less workers fiddle around with these innovative uh, distributed sure. decision-making systems? So we, have, we have 12 basic tools and they're more principles and practices. We don't give a template, but here's mm -hmm. practices for how to build a participation age company. And one of those is incentives. One of the mm -hmm. massive shifts, one of the tectonic shifts from the factory system, top-down hierarchy to a DDM team structured is to remove all bonuses and replace them with incentives. And here's the difference. Bonuses are time-based. Hmm. Incentives are results-based. And so we want everybody to be a capitalist. So we turn everybody, including the receptionist, into a capitalist. We lower their month, their hourly pay, and we give them incentives that are measured by our, our team surveys, as well as customer surveys, as well as uh, hard metrics, what we call production metrics, and all of that feeds into them getting a, 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 a money that will allow them to actually, without fail, everybody in our business makes more money. Their, their hourly rates are exponentially lower than other people who do the same job, and they make more money than everybody else around them. They would never leave. And it's because they're capitalists. They, they have, a, they have a, a, a say in their destiny. So the point of that rant is, how do we do more work with less? Well, we had a company in D.C. that had 18 truck drivers. And those 18 truck drivers were all paid $18 an hour. And they were doing work that was highly inefficient and really doing it badly. 
we we took them all. Uh, we didn't do it involuntarily. We asked for volunteers. Maybe two of the 18 decided they would do it, and as people left, we began replacing them with other people who would take $11 an hour. What are you, nuts? You know, mm. you know we get 18 anywhere else, you're going to pay us 11 Yeah, but here's the deal. Based on the metrics that you produce, you could be making 19 20 21 22 24 You could be making exponentially more, and you will make 18 if you just do the job the way it's supposed to be done. You'll make 18 and then you can go from there. Well, here's what happened. They had 18 truck drivers making $18 an hour. They ended up with 11 truck drivers making, uh, on average, $19.75 an hour. And they Pretty got clever. more. And those 19, those 11 people got a uh, uh, hundred and I think it was like 140 percent more work done between the 11 of them. You want to talk about saving money and doing things with less? Well, then rehumanize your workplace. Give everybody their brain, brain back. Capitalize it. Make them all into capitalists and watch what happens. Remember what I said up front. The participation age is two things, participation and sharing. Most of, of the, the work today in business is about this funny word called engagement. People are spending millions of dollars on engagement. You get, engagement is not a process. It's a result of rehumanizing your, business, your workplace. And you can't, it's a false narrative to, because what really what's really happening here is people are, uh, CEOs and, and leadership teams are communicating, I want you to produce more so that I can run off with more. Well, it's participation and sharing. You can't ask me to participate if you're not going to share. But if you share, we both make more money. And that example in DC is a, cl a classic example of that. Interesting. Uh, good example, by the way. And thank you for sharing that. So uh, another interesting area where we we see some hesitation uh, when when we talk to businesses about this these these innovative frameworks. So uh, unionized worker workforce, right? So in, anytime co corporations comes with say any, any innovative solutions, the union union get gung ho about it, right? They want to protect. So it's it just gets nowhere. And many of the many of these businesses are really struggling because of unions. Um, how would how would you uh, how would your framework um, work around those? Sure, yeah, we don't we don't need to work around them. This is where it gets fun. Again, all the data is on the side of doing this. There's no, I can't think of any hedges to the, doing this. Company in Brazil called Semco. Uh, the mm. author, the 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 uh, the guy who turned that company around wrote a book called Maverick. We can talk about that later. But Semco had mm. in 1980. Semco was a top-down classic uh, manufacturing facility. They made uh, pumps, heavy mm. pumps. And there were 300 people and $4 million, really bad, bad revenue. They'd been around for 30 years. And he decided he was going to take this thing over. And the first day, he fired 60% of the managers, which was a mistake. He should have been additive, not subtractive. And mm. as a result, it took him eight or nine years to actually get this thing figured out to where it, it, it had no managers. Uh, they are one Brazil. They are one of the most unionized, mm. most bureaucratic mm. places on earth. So the mm. government and the unions are absolutely stifling in Brazil. Mm. He decided that he was going to. He he came in with a different belief system. We're back to these beliefs. What do I believe? Well, he believed that people are smart and motivated, and so mm. he said, "One, I'm going to found this on two principles. Principle number one is trust in adult behavior." I'm going to mm -hmm. trust that these adults are actually adults. I'm not going to treat them like children. So there's all kinds of therefores to that. In Brazil, to show you how bad it is with the unions and with, uh, with the, the uh, relationship with management, 
you get frisk, at least in 1980, you got frisk going into the factory as well as coming out. Mm. It's that bad. So he mm. went to the unions and said, okay, I'm going to trust in adult behavior. Therefore, I am no, we are no longer going to frisk people going in or going out. No more frisking ever. We just to trust in adult behavior. And for the very few people that will do it wrong, well, I'm sure somebody will figure that out and we'll fire them. But we are going to, we're not going to drag everybody to the bottom for the very few. We're trusting in adult behavior. And the union struck. And the union said, we don't know what you're trying to do here. It sounds good. Mm -hmm. But anything that management does is evil. We know mm -hmm. that you're doing this to, to hurt us. And he said, for the next two or three years in a row, every time he tried to rehumanize the workplace, they would strike for a month or two or three until they figured out, I can't find any holes in this. Uh, by 1990, 10 years later, you asked the unions in Brazil that dealt with heavy manufacturing, and they would say, Semco is the only company in Brazil we implicitly trust. If they want to do something, we just say, sure, go ahead. And they have an mm -hmm. ongoing great relationship with Semco. So once again, you win if you do this. Interesting. And and typically, um, like if you if you're an executive or, or if, if you are uh, a stakeholder who realize that something needs to change and something needs to happen, like what would you what would you advise us as some three or four tactical steps that I should take um, to, to get started on this? Yeah, first one is is uh, the mindset thing. So you have to check your own mindset and your own belief systems. Do I, do I truly believe that I can trust in adult behavior? Or do I, do I, I believe that in my head but not in my heart? Can I actually live that out? And then I'd say the, the second thing would probably be in the area of thinking about people, not person. Change your mindset about how things have to run. When we, when we look at uh, Google came up with the 10 behaviors that, that people want at work. And they said, as a result of that, they made this huge leap from here's 10 behaviors people need at work to managers are, are necessary because we need one person who will deliver those 10 behaviors. Hmm. That's just a, a silly, you know, a nonsensical leap with no logic hmm. in it at all. There's no correlation. It's like you know, the, old, the old thing you learn in school that, that uh, crime goes up with uh, ice cream consumption. Therefore, ice cream causes crime rate. Hmm. I mean, there's no correlation. Hmm. But they made that correlation. Here's the other. Here's the better correlation. If there are ten behaviors that people want at work, don't look at a person to deliver those. Look at people to deliver them. So the second thing to think about here is how do I begin to look to look to people, not person. Example would be don't if you're a company of of let's say twelve people and you have one manager. Hmm. Uh, how about uh, making the manager, uh, the manager is good at five of those 10 things. They're never good at all of them. How about if hmm. you find two or three other people or you help the manager or you just put it out there to the rest of the, to the crew and say, here's five things that aren't covered. Who do you think would, you would like to have step up and be one of those people? And now instead of a manager, you have a team of leaders. You have two or three or four people and all 10 of those things get covered. So people, not person. Leadership teams, distributed decision-making teams. Uh, we're, we're always looking for the genius hero. It's, it's again, I, it, people think I hate managers. I don't. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm uh, a fan. I love the people who attempt to do this, but they are, failed. they are set up to fail. Nobody can do all 10 of those things that, that Google has 
uh, uh, identified. And if you're lucky, you got somebody who's a freaking genius hero who can do maybe five or six of them. It's one of the reasons people hate their managers because they're looking to them for it to be everything and they can't. What if we actually just took the 10 people and took those 10 things and said, okay, who can do number one? And somebody mm. volunteers Bob and says, well, I think Bob would be good at reports. And everybody else agrees. Okay, now we've just set up Bob as our leader. And then who could do the mentoring or the training? And you set it up and you might end up with, out of the 10 people, you might end up with five people who deliver those 10 things. And now you're getting all 10 of them and you're getting them as a team and you're building community together. And so you can see how this is working. Everybody gets their brain back, not just in production, but in mm. actually living in community at work. Interesting. And and when when say now let's let's put a focus on 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 startups, right? So if I'm a very early startup just coming along, from your vantage point, from your perspective, when is the right time I should start thinking about something like this? Uh, the day you figure out what product you're going to sell. Uh, you, I'm sure you've heard of Gore W L Gore. They sell Gore Tex. Well, W.L. Gore, Viv and, and Bill Gore started W.L. Gore, uh, started Gore, uh, w. L. Gore in their basement in 1958. And from the minute they started it, they said, we're not going to do the hierarchy thing. We're just not going to do that. We don't know what it'll come up, but we know that we can trust that people will have brains. And, and so we're just not going to do that. From the minute they started, it's now a 10,000 person, $3 billion company. And uh, for the last 60 years, there have been no managers at Gore. The CEO will not accept the title. She calls herself, I think, chief troublemaker or something like that. Or mm. So the minute you start, that is the easiest. You know, it's not, it's not as easy to turn the Queen Mary in the bathtub. If you get 30 years of being a top-down hierarchy, then companies mm. like ours have to come in and help you figure out how to do that so that you go straight up instead of creating the chaos you think you might get. If you start this way from scratch, we can still help you with that, but it's a way easier process. Interesting. And and, and, and in your experience, like who are some of the toughest managers who just simply like that you have worked with explaining this and they may not get it? Like, and who are the, the easiest ones? Like what are the, what are the sure. ingredients of both the sides of, of who can yeah. get this this philosophy the easiest managers to work with are the ones who don't act like managers they act like leaders they just intuitively act like leaders here's the difference man man well i'll give you the definitions no i won't do that it's it's easier this way when i mm. when i when i when i talk to a manager i get the sense that they are important when i talk mm. to a leader i get the sense that i am important so the difference is that the manager sees you as a part of the top-down hierarchy. We call it a pyramid scheme because that's exactly what it is. The people at the top are going to benefit from the people at the bottom. And the people at the bottom understand that they exist in order to, to feed the people at the top. It's a user's world. And so the manager's job is to get as much as they can out of those people and, and be a user of them and see them that way. A leader will, will understand that if they actually train these people, teach them how to make decisions and get the heck out of the way, that the company will be better off, we'll all make more money, we'll all be better off. So am I a servant or am I wanting to be served? The people who want to be served are the ones who have the most difficulty with this. The ones who like the, the walnut office and the big chair and the, the, the title on their shoulder and the ego and all of the other intangible pathological things that come with this, mm. um, those are the people who have the most to work through. 
But the people who are all the managers who have already been working, you know, people say, well, you throw stones at managers. I love my manager. And then I ask mm. them what they do. And sure enough, mm. they're acting like leaders. They're not coming out of their office telling people what to do. They're coming out, pulling the people together and saying, hey, what do you guys think we should do? And they're, they're, they're facilitators, they're guides, they're supports, they're visionaries, they're champions. You know, that's what, uh, you know, they, champ- they guard the values, they champion the people, they pilot the results. So those are the easiest people to work with. We just need to change their titles. Now, the others, we have to work a lot with the uh, deep-seated belief systems that the factory system taught them. And I think we have to be fair because a lot of people did not, you know, they, they're not natural this way. We taught them. Mm. We taught mm. them 100, you know, 175 years of this nonsense. We taught them that this is how to do it. So we have to be patient and, and help retrain them. We, we're not disposing managers. We find on a regular basis people who are deeply entrenched in, in top-down uh, management uh, get excited about this stuff. And it might take them a year or two to figure it out, but they figure it out. No, I think you have raised a very interesting point. So I think it, in one of the conversations, I remember that someone was telling me that, hey, if, 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 you, if you see how we were raised, uh, right, so we were put in a in a room uh, 40 people in a, 40 kids in a room we were taught something yeah. for x years every year we grew to something and we became seniors now we come out so we are our brain is intuitively trained in this way to appreciate hierarchy yeah. and appreciate so it's, it's very difficult to now uh, think think otherwise of, of how, just, how it's gonna go. i mean just an example of how it, how deeply true what deep truth there is in re, in, in rehumanizing the workplace just the example you gave there of the education system, how broken that is. We have no idea how broken that is. The mm. word education comes from the, from the, the root word educe. Mm. Educe means to draw out. Nobody in college is drawing anything mm. out. You're sitting mm. in rows and you're filling those empty heads of mush with mm. my information, and I'm filling you up. Mm. I'm not. Mm. I'm assuming it's empty in there. But education, er, you know, uh, uh, Socrates-type Socrates education mm. says, it's all in there. I just need to help you learn how to learn and how to ask questions and how to draw it out of you. We actually do education. Induce. Mm. Induce means mm. to, to, uh, to fill up which is why you get a baby out of there. You fill it up with something else. You induce. Mm. And so we're not doing education. We're doing education. So just that right by itself. And sure enough, if you look around, you find a participation age school system. A very valid school system in every state in, in America now. No classrooms, no classes, no teachers, no curriculum. Uh, and everything is run by adults. There's, there, there are adults. There's like one adult mm. for every 20 kids. But they are facilitators, right? And so, if two kids are playing cards, they go over and they help them. The kids learn how to do. There's all kinds of things you can do with that. Kids learn at their own pace. It sounds like chaos and anarchy. It's not. Eighty-five percent of those kids go on to higher education, including Harvard. And the number one complaint they have about their college roommates is they don't take responsibility for their lives. Interesting. And 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 one, I I, I need your um your thought on one 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 last thought. Um, in in this idea of reorganization, right? So, uh, right now, even my company is investing a lot into into this idea of um, re- retraining, reeducating, right? So now, right now, um, it, the skill that is required to stay relevant in in workforce, sure, it's now there are a lot more skills that are emerging that one needs to be trained for, 
and the shelf life of skills are, are diminishing, right? So there needs to be some some effort going on. So when when you talk about your framework of um, rehumanizing workforce, how would that um, tapered around this idea of because when we were young, uh, we were we were in college and then some piece in in the college that we we studied end up in the job, so we had some transition over and we we stayed relevant for some time. Sure. Before we hit something, right now the kids that what they are studying in the schools, the moment they join workforce, it, it's totally different world. Every like the skills that they are trained for is not even what's relevant anymore sure. in in the workforce. So how would um, your structure uh, helps with this idea of re-educating or, yeah. or re-energizing re- the workforce to stay relevant? It's a great question. Company? So. You know, first of all, HR still has a, a, a role here, not the role they used to have. They're no longer the codependent mother. We're going to take care of our own problems. But this is one thing they can do is, is continue to present. It's To begin with, it's an education issue. That mm-hmm. One of the responsibilities of the company is to continue to educate their people as to what they need. If you want to stay relevant with us and you want to keep moving forward with us, this is where mm-hmm. we're going. And so this programming language in five years, we're not going to be using that or, you know, we're going to be low code, no code. We're not going to use uh, Ruby on Rails anymore. We're done. So you better figure out the low code, no code thing. And you got five years to figure it out. Get after it. So there's an education process, a responsibility in our part to, to not spring things on people and say, okay, mm-hmm. we, no, we no longer need this. We now need that. And you're not equipped for it. Uh, be in communication. Then the second piece of it is we do not take responsibility for them getting retrained. We give them mm-hmm. all the information about what they need. We make that mm-hmm. available to them. And then we want people, people to be surprised, adults. Who told that person they had to go to college? Who actually made them go to college? Who mm-hmm. told them what they had to sign up for? Who told them what house to buy, to buy who to marry? We're not going to do that at work either. We're going to provide you with the 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 uh, the, edu- the opportunity, and then we will train you. And in many cases, we've trained people in things that have nothing to do with where we are or even where we're going. We had one right. woman who was a receptionist who just she wanted to learn how to to, to do design work, and she found a thousand dollar course that would help her do that. We paid for the course. Had nothing to do with what we're doing or where we're going, but we knew that if we help her develop, she's going to be more. Uh, productive and more loyal to us. So it's on us to educate them and it's on them to step up and be proactive and lead from your seat, get out of your seat, don't play the victim and say, I need to go get this either here internally or somewhere else. I got to go get it. But we need to be involved in in helping them understand what they need. Interesting. And and, um, that, so that, thank you so much, Chuck. I think that was really, really helpful. So now um, we are at the tail end of the conversation and I want to spend a few minutes on your journey, uh, sure. understanding. So uh, we ask our guests to share about, say, one to three things that has really helped them stay successful throughout this this um, their span. Like what would you attribute, like what, would the, uh, what are those qualities you attribute a success to? Like, what would you call uh, that has helped you stay successful? Yeah, I've never actually written anything on this, but I I plan to at some point. Uh, Two sentences define everybody's lives. See if if this is true or not. Sentence one, Mm -hmm. number one is, I can't do that. Sentence number two is a question. How do I do that? And so one of the things that has defined my life, and I didn't figure this out until I was probably in my 30s or 40s. I was the youngest of four children. I was completely ignored, all kinds of wham-wham stuff. But I learned that I had to survive in the world around me, so I figured out how to get stuff done. 
And I mm. never, I never looked at anything with the attitude. I can't do that. It was always, well, I don't know how I might even say, I don't know how to do that, but then it would immediately be followed with, how do I do that? So I learned how to be, uh, to throw pottery. I learned how to run a marathon. I, you know, I, uh, everything, I just, I ran 12 businesses in eight different industries and I didn't know much about any of those. And so I think that's one key to success. And Carol Dweck, you know, 20 years later comes out with a book called mindset that basically says, mm. you know, fixed mindset, growth mindset. Well, there it is. Mm. I can't mm. do that. Or how do I do that? So that's number one. And then the second thing for me has been uh, this idea of being relentless. And, I, and I'm writing uh, a book on that as well right now, just telling stories of myself and other people. Uh, it's not about being smart. And it's not about being lucky. It's about being relentless. Mm. If you look at people who have been, there are some people who were not all that smart and not all that lucky who were highly successful. Mm. And if you look at why, it's because they never gave up. Last man standing. You know, Winston Churchill said leadership is the art of getting up one more time than you got knocked down. Mm. So just being relentless. And that's interesting, Vishal, because as a kid, I was known as the quitter. I quit everything. If it got mm. the least bit hard, I quit. Uh, and I you know, quit school. I quit everything. So my, my great strength or my great weakness became my great strength. And I, again, I didn't realize this. I had to form this in my 40s and early 50s. So that's the second thing is to be relentless. Um, and then the third one is to be, uh, to be a learner, to be, to be open and transparent, to be willing to be wrong on a regular basis, to know that you don't know. Mm. Uh, you know, the old adage that, uh, that, that as soon as I have something figured out, that's when it gets dangerous. <laughs> so uh, when I first mm. started golfing, after a year of golfing, I figured I knew like 30% of what I needed. And by the time I got to a 10 handicap, I figured I knew 80% of what I needed. And then I got a coach. And I got down to a two handicap and I figured out, you know, I probably know about 15% of what I need to know to actually, the, the, mm. the more we know, the less we should yeah. know. Yeah. So stay fascinated. It, it, Maybe that's the better way to stay. Just stay fascinated. Well said. And, and thank you for sharing that. And uh, one more thing I, I really want to know your perspective on is, so what would be your favorite read that you want to share with our listeners and viewers? Like we ask all of our guests to share their favorite read any book? Sure. Uh, I, I would say one that, that I talked about today, Maverick. I got a bunch of them, so there's not just one. My favorite mm -hmm. all-time read, I'll say, is, is uh, Self-Made in America by John McClintock. Mm -hmm. You've never heard of him. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, I don't uh, push forward a lot of motivational speaker kind of stuff or motivational mm -hmm. books. This is the only motivational book I'll recommend, and it's because it's not written by a motivational speaker. It's written by mm -hmm. a guy who put hair salons in Texas. And it's one of the most motivating books you could ever get because this is real life bullets this guy's shooting. This is not, you know, walking on cools or singing, singing Kumbaya or chanting at your vision board. This is real stuff. So mm. Self-Made in America, but related to what we're talking about today, Maverick. The book Maverick mm. by Ricardo Semler, which journals his, his uh, it, it tells his journey from a top-down hierarchy to a self-managed distributed decision-making team uh, model. Interesting. Interesting. Um, um, and I think the last question I have for you, and, and thank you for very gracious with your time. So um, if you want our listeners and viewers to take something away from this conversation, like what would that be? What would be your parting thought to our listeners and viewers? Uh, fill holes. <laughs> and what I mean by that, my life vision, and I got this from somebody else. I, I, didn't, I don't think I've ever had an original thought in my life, but I'm pretty sure you haven't either. So I'm okay with that. But <laughs> you know, I stole this from somewhere. 
my life question has been, why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can't or won't? So what is it that nobody else is doing today? Nobody's helping that little old lady across the street or nobody's creating this piece of software to solve that problem or you know, what is it I can do to be of contribution in the world around me? Let me fill a gap today. Let me fill a hole. Here's the dirty little secret in life that took me many decades to find out. The happiest people on earth are solving other people's problems. Find a mm. hole in somebody else's life and fill it today, and you will be happier because you paid attention to their problem, not your own. Beautifully put. With that, Chuck, thank you so, so much for, for sitting with us, helping us understand um, this idea of rehumanizing workforce and, and sharing your thoughts and wish you nothing but success in your journey. And we are always welcome on the podcast. And whenever you are in Boston, do let me know. We'd love to, love to sit with you at some point uh, and, and, and have this amazing conversation with well, you face to face. We might want to talk because I'll, uh, I'll be at Tush University uh, in, in a few weeks at one of their MBA classes. So stay tuned. And, that's, and I'm, that's I think beautiful. I might be at beautiful. Harvard at the same time. So I think both of those are in Boston. So. Yes, yes, yes. Hey, love people, to, love to. We didn't talk about it, but if people want to get a hold of us, they can just go to chuckblakeman.com. That's the easiest thing to do. Just go to chuckblakeman.com and, and uh, you'll get all the information you need if you want any from, from us. Yes, and, 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 and uh, our listeners and viewers, we will also put all the links that Chuck talked cool. about his book and, 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 and wherever you can go to study his, um, his, his ideology on, 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 on this reorganization, rehumanizing workforce template. So thank you so much, Chuck, on that. Thank you. Appreciate it so much, Michelle. Yep. Yeah, I, just, I, just, uh, I, just, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable. Don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once. That's it. Can I go into the booth feeling nervous? Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down. I hope I'm not up on a certain